This little paragraph we come to this morning, 2 Corinthians 1, verses 12, 13, and 14. Sort of a pivot out of the, the introductory matters that Paul was dealing with in the passage we looked at last week and, and this first major section of the book. In, in, in the sense of historical context, in its setting, Paul had invested years of his life in his relationship with the church at Corinth. He had, he had first visited there in uh, probably late AD 51, and um, as he writes 2 Corinthians, it's probably about five years after that, maybe a little bit more. And during that period, as I, as I relate a little bit on the last week's podcast, he, he has visited the church at least twice, is planning a third visit. He's written at least four letters. Second Corinthians is the second of those that we have preserved in our Bible, but it's the fourth in the overall sequence of Paul's writing to them based on references in both First and Second Corinthians. He has loved them. He has engaged in actively pursuing Christ on their behalf and wanting them to grow in their faith and their faithfulness. And at, at, at this moment, he's responding to some very, very, very unfair attacks that have come. A group has come representing themselves as, as uh, an emissary from the church at Jerusalem. And in their time at Corinth, they have attacked Paul's teaching They have attacked the the content of of the gospel that he had shared among them. And they've attacked his character. They've said that he's he's a fraudulent apostle and that his teaching can't be trusted. Thus, his love for the church at Corinth, well, that can't be trusted either. And in the in the course of now beginning to speak sort of in his own in his own defense and, and to vindicate his ministry among the Corinthians. Paul makes a a statement here regarding the testimony of his conscience. And in these three verses, spells out sort of a schematic for cultivating a clear conscience. And that's what I wanna talk to you about this morning. I wanna read the verses and then come back and let's let's share a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter one, verses 12, 13, and 14. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. The word boast occurs three times in that paragraph, and we'll talk a little bit later about how that word is functioning in this paragraph, but we need to talk about conscience for a bit. The word conscience stands, stands for the Greek word sinaidosis. It's used 27 times in the New Testament. The word is a compound word, the, the prefix, or the, the preposition sun, meaning together with, and the, the idosis part of sinaidosis coming from a Greek, Greek word to know. To know. So knowing alongside is the idea of the word for conscience, which is exactly, by the way, how the word is built in English. From a, from a prefix meaning together with, con, 
and, and science, to know, conscience. So the words are very, very similar in the two languages and they function in a similar way. We need to talk for a moment about what the conscience isn't and what the conscience is. First off, and this is really, really important for you if you're a child of God, the conscience is not the voice of God, the Holy Spirit in your life. The conscience is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. Every, every person has a conscience. It's a, it's a reflection. Months ago when we were talking about mankind created in the image of God, one of the things that we said is a characteristic of our, our created in the image of Godness is our capacity for moral reasoning. We can, we can act in response to the awareness that things are right or things are wrong. That's the, the conscience. It's, um, it's part of, well, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, God has put eternity in the hearts of created people. But it's not the voice of God. Because the voice of God is found right here. We've said it repeatedly. The word of God is the vocabulary of the spirit of God in the heart of the child of God. Your conscience is not reliable. Let your conscience be your guide is horrific advice. Or at the very best, untrustworthy advice. Several authors that I read liken it's like, it's like they read each other's stuff. They liken the conscience to the warning lights on your life's control panel. Okay, there's a problem. There's a problem. And we can, we can train those warning lights or we can ignore and misprogram those warning lights. For example, the conscience, as I have on your notes there, it can be seared that is, it can be burned and cauterized to ineffectiveness or it can be defiled. Look with me at 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciousness or whose consciences are Seared. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. You can mistrain your conscience. Down my... Down my years of, of pastoral counseling. And I want to pause there for a second. Um, whenever, I, whenever I share an observation or tell a story out of my, my pastoral counseling, if it's, if it's a remotely specific story, it was long ago and far away. And if it's a generalization, it's just that, sort of a picture that has emerged. I don't want you to fear if we ever need to sit down and talk and I can be helpful in your life as a counselor. And sometimes I can. I never want you to fear that if you come see me, you'll be a pulpit story the next week. 
Now, he tells a lot of stories from his counseling, and I don't want to be one of them, and I don't blame you. I wouldn't want to be either. But one of the saddest patterns that has emerged over the years is people will come and they'll sit down and they'll begin to describe what's going on in their life. And often what's going on in their life is some pattern of horrific sin. Maybe they're being unfaithful to their spouse. Maybe they're, they're behaving as an addict to some behavior or substance. Maybe they're stealing. Maybe there's, there's something going on that it's just plainly and evidently, it's wrong, it's sin. But all too often I've had people say, and I don't, I don't really think there's anything wrong with it. My conscience isn't bothering me at all. I don't, feel, I don't feel any guilt about that at all. Isn't that wonderful? It must not be sin. Friend, that's not wonderful. That is an indication that you have mangled the effective functioning of your conscience. Or if the lights are coming on, you're ignoring them. I have a friend whose judgment I trust. A friend I have known for years. A friend whose counsel I have depended upon in more than one setting. In fact, he's a well, he's a fellow elder in this congregation. And he told me this week that he has a car that he drives most days and the check engine light has been on for 18 years. <laughs> I know. I know. To quote him, he hardly notices it anymore. I'm not suggesting my friend has a seared conscience. Farther from it, furthest from it. But some of you, perhaps, have so lived with a pattern of sin, an attitude, a practice. And the warning light came on at first but it just doesn't bother you anymore. Don't you mistake that for a clear conscience. That's not a clear conscience. That's either a seared or an ignored conscience. You can sear and defile your conscience to the point that it's just not useful. On the other hand, though your conscience is not the voice of God, the Holy Spirit in your life, I don't want to be clear about that. You can, however, by time in God's word, by attentiveness to the things of God, you can train your conscience. Your conscience can be purified toward usefulness. Hebrews 9, 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If you're here this morning and you're outside of Christ, your conscience is just a feedback loop. Your conscience is going to help you feel good about feeling good about feeling good about feeling good about feeling good about yourself. It's why the loudest message of virtue out there in our culture is to yourself be true. Just make sure you're your authentic self. My authentic self is a nightmare. 
The last thing anybody who cares about me should be exposed to is my authentic self at its worst. But I can train my conscience to feed back to me that as long as I'm keeping it real, I'm certainly not doing anything significantly problematic. On the other hand, if I keep my eyes and my heart in God's word and allow God's word to train me as you would allow God's word to train you, the conscience can be a useful tool in the hands of God the Holy Spirit. David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. That's what we're talking about. And a clear conscience is a good thing. Paul, toward the end of his missionary career, giving his testimony in Acts chapter 24, Acts 24 verse 16 says, so I always take pains. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. The word occurs 27 times in the New Testament. And almost without exception, almost without exception, it's in a context where the pursuit of a clear conscience is what's in view. So how can we cultivate a clear conscience? What can we learn from this paragraph? First thing, my walk. My walk, the way I live my life. Paul says in verse 12, our boast is this. The testimony of our conscience. Letter A, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. That is, walk with integrity. We behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Simplicity is the idea of, of being arranged in an orderly way. Straightforward, not tangled up, but simple. A, a, a sort of heavyweight version of what you see is what you get. Not just unfiltered, blurting candor, but reality. A, a life that doesn't have boxes and pockets and chambers and areas that you hope no one ever learns about. It's just, it's just, it's just simple. This is, this is where I stand because this is what I stand for. This is who I am because of who I belong to. It's not complicated. It's not tangled up. It's simple. And then the idea of sincerity is the idea of, of the same through and through. The opposite of sincerity is the idea of covering something in a veneer so that it appears to be what it isn't. To live sincerely is to live, so you know what? Look at the surface of my life and take a core sample. Drill through the heart of my life and what you'll find at the core is what you find on the surface. Paul said, I live that way. You've got people now who are questioning me? I live with you. You know me. If you are going to have a clear conscience in your relationship to God and others, you can't be constantly cutting and shuffling the deck of your life hoping nobody sees what the cards really are. With integrity. Second, by grace. Not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God. 
the great irony is a Christian that behaves themselves gracelessly. Our, our lives, both now and more eternally, our lives have been recontextualized by the grace of God. We've been pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and placed in the kingdom of light by the grace of God. Grace is our story. How can we be graceless? We may at times have to be direct. Speaking the truth in love matters, even if the truth is not terribly pleasant. But gracelessness in how we relate to people? How can that be? I bet you, like me, have a catalog in your mind of past conversations. And I bet in your mental inventory of you know, interactions, the time you had this conversation and the time you had that conversation, I bet, if you're like me, there are a few of them you wish you could go back and get a do-over where you just, wow, I didn't handle that right. Wow, there was a missed opportunity there. You know the ones I don't regret? The conversations I don't regret were the conversations where I demonstrated grace. Grace has given me a clear conscience regarding any number of past conversations, even some tough ones. The ones I wish I could fix were the ones where I was graceless. And my conscience was, watch it, watch it, watch it. You want to have a clear conscience? Walk with integrity. Walk by grace. And third, just know that it matters how you treat others, toward others, and supremely so toward you, Paul says. With deliberateness in his approach to them. If there's a church in the New Testament that Paul had a relationship with that I absolutely would have given up on, it's Corinth. Those people were crazy. That was a basket case of a church. And yet, and, and then the, Paul, Paul gets attacked there personally. And he stays with it. He keeps loving them. He keeps demonstrating by his very willingness to not say, you know what? See ya. That his relationship to them is driven by grace. Roman numeral two, my words. My words. So much of the New Testament addresses how we communicate with one another verbally and how God can use our voices and, and the story of our life and the things that we say are to be a tool um, in our fulfilling of our role as ambassadors. Here in verse 13, he says, we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understood, or read and understand, and I hope you'll fully understand. Three things about that. First letter A, if I'm going to have my words be useful in a way that can help my conscience be clear, I'm gonna have to know God's word and thus his heart. You will never express the heart of God if you don't know the heart of God. And you will never know the heart of God beyond the time you take to know the word of God. 
You cannot think biblically if you are not growing as a student of what God has said. Thinking biblically, which is one of our measures in our purpose statement, assumes you're, you're building a framework. And we've said it so often, it's so true. The word of God is the vocabulary of the spirit of God in the life of the child of God. You don't know what God is saying if you don't know what God has said and you don't know what God has said if you're not a student of God's word. Make it a life study. I must know God's word. Paul says, I'm not writing to you anything that's new. So let her be, I must strive to be clear and consistent. I must strive to be clear and consistent. Don't create confusion between what you say you believe and what you say. Be consistent. Be clear, be focused. I know it's not exactly a virtue in our culture, but, but to some degree, be predictable. Gail and I have been, this coming October, Gail and I will have been married for 40 years. Amen. And uh, amen, you know what? And testimony to my wife's courage and fortitude. Because being married for 40 years has required of us a great deal of focused commitment and more even so from her because I am extraordinarily high maintenance. Few people know it because Gail is such an amazing maintainer. And so my maintenance is happening in the context, my maintenance is happening in the context of that relation. You meet an adult that is, oh, it's so low maintenance. I'll bet you anything there's a spouse somewhere that's doing the maintaining so that you're not being brutalized by it. At any rate, there's much to love and admire about my sweet Gail, but one of the things that she says, she says, she finds most lovable about me. One would expect that to be a short list. Is that I am predictable. Russell, I not only know what you're going to say next, I know everything you're going to say for the next five days. I decided a long time ago, adrenaline is not my friend. I avoid it. I don't want anything to be exciting. I like, I like predictable. I like steady. I don't mind watching other people enjoy excitement. I just think adrenaline is a poison. Some of y'all are like, I knew he was a dull old guy and now he's admitting it. And while I do not want to raise my own level of dull predictability to that of a virtue, it surely is not, it's a mere characteristic, I do offer you that, that, that consistently in predictability. You know what? If you're in a situation and your friend knows what the Bible says about that, they ought to know what you're going to say. If your friend knows what the Bible says ought to be done in the set of circumstances, your friend ought to know what you're going to do. 
There ought to be an alignment. Paul said, all I'm, all I'm sharing with you is what I've always shared with you. All I'm representing to you is what I've always represented to you. I must strive to be clear and consistent and understood, letter C, I must hope to be used of God as his spokesperson. I hope you will fully understand. I want to be used of God in your life in a way that you understand, says Paul, without apology. In this very book, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we're going to get to that, that verse that we, uh, I often cite it by, by reference, that we are ambassadors of Christ. We are spokespeople of the living God in the world. And we must hope to be understood, used of God as his spokespeople. Our walk, our words. Finally, Roman numeral three, our wish. Our wish. To have a clear conscience toward people. I've got to relate to others with kingdom intentionality. God has placed you in the where and the when of where you are. He has appointed you an ambassador. Whether or not the people in your circle go to hell forever is beyond your pay grade. You cannot be determinative in whether or not people with whom you have been given the opportunity to interact, you can't determine whether they go to hell or heaven. You and I both know that. But here is what you can do. You can purpose to so walk, to so speak, and to so intend that to your greatest capacity, the people in your life will not go to hell unwarned. That's the tragedy. That we would, we would withdraw from caring. Well, Brother Russell, I haven't told anybody about Jesus in 10 years and my conscience is perfectly clear. No, your conscience is seared. Your conscience is mangled beyond usefulness because you cannot have spent time learning what God's word says about their lostness and your responsibility and you are putting your head on your pillow dry-eyed and at peace while people around you are going to hell unwarned. That cannot be. May the Lord Create in us a clean heart. Unsear our conscience. And then show us that intentionality in the lives of others for the sake of his gospel is an important piece of having a clear conscience. Letter A under Roman 3, I must be willing, of course, to love people where they are. <laughs> Corinth was a mess. As, as first century cities go, it was rich. The way it was positioned, it had access to, to different ocean ports on the north side and south side. A ton of cargo flowed through Corinth. It was wealthy, it was politically influential, 
It was the most influential, one of the most influential cities in the Roman Empire outside of Rome. It was cosmopolitan. People from cultures all over the Mediterranean basin converged in Corinth. It was horrifically evil. Among the various idol-worshiping complexes of Corinth, and there were many, was a very prominent temple to Aphrodite, which basically was, a, was an industrial-grade prostitution operation. In fact, in the first century, there was a slang term to Corinthianize. To Corinthianize, to live like a Corinthian. And it meant to live like a pig. You're Corinthianizing again. Was to live with just a morally worthless life. How'd you like to have your city known for that? What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, I suppose. Hmm. And yet Paul loved them. If you read 1 Corinthians through this lens, you'll see it. 1 Corinthians could be subtitled, I'm gonna love you where you are. But woe where you are is a mess. Even the church coming out of the mess they had come out of, you know, messed up unbelievers who get saved become messed up Christians until they grow, face some things, outgrow some things. Paul loved that church. I'd have told that church to buzz off long before he had. In fact, in Baptist life, the average Southern Baptist pastor, it lasts for 18 months. Because loving people where they are is hard. People are messed up. And then you put messed up pastors with messed up people. And if there's not a lot of love and a lot of grace in the room, the relationships just fly right on by. Paul loved them where they were, but he was not content as we must not be content. Letter B, I must also be eager to help people move toward the salvation and a discipled walk with God. People are lost. And apart from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, that, that collision point where the righteousness of God comes via the cross to be counted to us even as our sin is counted to Christ on the cross, which opens the door for repentance and faith and a right relationship with an otherwise unapproachably holy God. By the way, if you've not done that, if you're outside of Christ and you're trusting your conscience, you're trusting a feedback loop that's making your own noises back at you. And it will guide you into hell. Rather trust to the gospel of Jesus Christ that you would live forever in right relationship with God if you will turn from your sin and trust him. That must be the message of our lives. He, he met them where they were. They once partially understood, says verse 14. But his hope was that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now, what does boast mean in this paragraph? The word can have the idea of unpleasant bragging. I'm gonna boast about this or boast about that or boast about the other thing. But not in this paragraph and not in various other places in the New Testament. The word carries the idea of rejoicing that I can, I can rejoice about something. I can, I can see something as, as so good that it's worth expressing how good it is to rejoice. 
Paul said, you know, when the long story of my relationship with y'all is told, here's what I want it to be. I want it to be that you can be joyful. You can rejoice that you've known me. And I can rejoice that I've known you. And one day when we all stand before Jesus together, we can, we can be blessed by the fact that we were in each other's story. And we played a role in following Jesus home together. That's what he says he wants to boast about. Do that in your relationships with others. And you will have, as Paul strove for, a clear conscience toward God and men. <laughs>